The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Well, good evening, everyone. So wonderful to see you here in church on a Saturday evening. And we're going to get into the word. We've been working our way through the book of Colossians. So you can go ahead and begin turning there now. And and while you're doing that, I have a few announcements. And then we're actually going to be doing something a little bit different as we get started this evening. The the next thing that I wanted to talk about is um, what's been going on between Russia and in particular in Ukraine as Russian forces have advanced. And I know they're closing in on Kiev, the main city there. And, and so our hearts, my heart has been stirred. And I've been hearing reports from our ministry partners and missionaries who are overseas who, or who are in touch with people who are overseas on the mission field, boots on the ground. And the reports that they are sending back are, are troubling. They're scary, um, and, and they've moved my heart to want to pray and, and to get involved practically. And so what I would love for us to do as we get started this evening is to just pair off in groups of two, three, four, five, whatever's convenient for you in the, the space where you are. And I'm going to give us some prayer points, and we're going to work our way through these in small groups, because prayer works, Amen. And as we think about what can we do, we're so far away. And, and the number one thing that our ministry partners and missionaries are asking for is prayer support. So we're going to pray for them. And then in the coming weeks, as things unfold, and, and it's a developing story, isn't it? Um, we're hearing about all of these refugees. I think the last report was that there are upwards of 200,000 people that have been displaced, that are now refugees, and many of them are trying to make their way into Poland, and, and they can't exchange money, and the roads are clogged, and it's, it's a terrible situation, and there's going to be a lot of need for the body of Christ to rally, to come together, and to, to help out in practical ways, and we're going to keep you abreast of those um, as, as those needs become known. We're going to share those with you, and we're going to respond in practical ways, but at this point, this critical juncture, the most valuable thing that we can do is pray. And so here's what I'm going to ask you to pray for. Pray for the war to end quickly. Amen? Pray for the safety and the protection of the people of Ukraine, especially their soldiers, as well as the Russian soldiers and those who have taken up arms to defend their country. Pray that God would take what Satan means for evil and turn it for good. Secondly, pray for peace and wisdom for our brothers and sisters the churches, the pastors, the saints. Pray that they would be bold, that they would have opportunities to share the hope of Jesus with the hopeless and the oppressed. We also want to pray for the refugees who fled for safety, that God would be merciful and kind to them as they look for shelter and a place to start a new life. Pray for the people of Russia, that they would see the truth and that their dissatisfaction with their leadership would cause them to turn to Jesus. And finally, pray for the leaders and those in positions of authority, including our president, that God would give them wisdom as they lead their countries through these perilous days. So let's go ahead and break up into groups right now. Go ahead, wherever 
you are, break up into groups and just begin to pray. And we have some prompts up here on the screen behind me. If you get lost and don't know what to pray for, you can turn your attention to the screen. And we'll just pray for the next couple of minutes here. Lord, we thank you for hearing our prayers, for giving us an audience, that we have the ear of the King of Kings. Thank you, Lord, for the angels that are being dispatched at this moment, how heaven is being mobilized, how the enemy is being confounded, how the enemy is being thwarted, how the enemy is being defeated right now, because as our prayers go up, heaven's glory comes down, and the enemy, he can't stand against the glory of God. And so we thank you, Jesus, that you are on the move, that you are working. And even in the darkest nights, Lord, your glory shines brighter than a star, brighter than the sun. Lord, would you take what the enemy intends for evil? Would you turn it for good? Thank you for hearing all these prayers, all of these prayers coming up before you. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you, Heavenly Father. And now, Lord, as we open your word, would you speak to our hearts in the name of Jesus? And all God's people said, amen. 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 I love it when we get to start church with everyone praying together. That is a beautiful thing. Beautiful thing. All right, so Colossians chapter 3, if you haven't already turned there. And the title of my message for you tonight is Jesus in Everything. Jesus in Everything. Are you familiar with what a bento box is? It's kind of a new concept for me, but a bento box is basically a lunchbox, right? But it's got all of these dividers and sections and compartments so that you can put various foods in their little compartments. Well, I feel like a lot of Christians out there have what I might describe as a bento box mentality when it comes to their faith. They like to divide their lives into neat little compartments, separate compartments. So they put their friends in one box. They put their family into another one. Another one might get dedicated to work. And another gets dedicated to finances. And then there's that compartment where all the God stuff goes. This is the spiritual compartments where you put church and Bible reading and prayer and worship and these kinds of things. You know, For a, a Christian with a bento box mentality, faith plays a role. It might even get the biggest chunk of the box. But that box is clearly defined and limited in its scope. And what I'm here to tell you tonight and what we're going to see in God's word is that God wants to touch every part of your life. He wants your life to reflect, I don't know, a chicken pot pie, you know, just all the ingredients mixed together. He has no interest in ruling over one tiny segment of your life. Either he's Lord of all, as it's been said, or he's not Lord at all. And so that's what we're going to start to see here tonight as we 
make our way into the second half of chapter 3, beginning in verse 15. And that you can view this as part one of a two-part series, because next week, we're going to continue on in this same vein as we see how God wants to just touch and influence and impact every part of our lives, not just our spiritual life, you know, versus, you know, we have this, here's my sacred life, and here's my secular life. Here's my real life, and here's my church life, my church friends and my work friends. No, no, no. He wants to mix all of that together, and God wants to show us how he's going to impact and touch our home lives and our work lives and our parenting and, and just all of it. And so beginning tonight, we're going to see that. So go ahead and read with me in verse 15. Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And that's the key verse in this whole section, verse 17, where Paul says, whatever you do, in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. I like the way the message translation, which is more of a paraphrase or thought-for-thought translation of the Bible, renders that verse. Listen to this carefully. He says, let every detail of your lives, words, actions, whatever, be done in the name of the master, Jesus. So in other words, if what you're doing falls into any one of these three categories, words, deeds, or whatever, Jesus wants to have a say in it. He wants to be involved with it. He wants to be a part of it. And so that's what we get to talk about tonight. Now, the first place that Jesus must rule before he can rule over everything and the whatevers of life, it starts with our hearts. So that's where Paul begins in verse 15 when he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. So God can't affect and impact and touch all the stuff out there until he's ruling in here. And specifically, Paul mentions the peace of Christ. So let the peace of Christ rule in you. That's the first heading. Now, our world, and you know this, is full of hatred, conflict, and strife, and division, and and all kinds of ugliness, right? We just finished praying for war that is raging between Russia and Ukraine. Peace is something that seems elusive, maybe even like a pipe dream. It seems out there and unattainable, and, and all mankind's attempts to bring peace to the world have failed. And here's why. None of those attempts have taken into account the root cause of all the fighting, the war, and all the rest of it. They never deal with the root issue. But the Bible tackles that issue head on. And it says that the reason we have and experience a lack of peace externally out there in our world is because it's just a reflection of the inner turmoil that rages within the human heart. You see, the the world will never know peace out there until it first experiences peace in here with God. Now, this is where the Christian steps in, because the Christian is a person 
who has stepped into a new relationship with God the Father through his son, Jesus Christ, whereby we now have peace with God. This is a peace that comes from knowing that your sins have been dealt with on the cross of Jesus Christ. That brings peace to the soul. There's a verse in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, that says it so well. And I'd love it if we could read this verse together out loud. You ready? Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You have peace with God if you're a believer in Jesus because of what he has done for you. You may not have thought of yourself at war with God before, but make no bones about it. You definitely were. You are either a child of the light or you are a child of the darkness. You either belong to the kingdom of the son of his love or you belong to the kingdom of Satan. And so once you confess your sins, repent of them, and come into the kingdom of light, you now have peace with God. The the enmity of God is over in your life. And now, once you're at peace with God, that opens the door for your ability to begin to experience something else. The Bible describes as the peace of God. Not just peace with God, but the peace of God. This is a distinct and and very beautiful and powerful form of peace. It's a deep sense of calm that comes over your heart and comes over your soul, and it comes as a result of knowing that God is on the throne, that he's in control, and that while things might rage out of control down here, it's, it's all part of his ultimate plan, and he's working all things together for our good and his glory. So what that means for the believer is when you have the peace of God, it's an incredible thing because the world and your circumstances can just be completely chaos. But inside, you can experience perfect peace. Paul talked about this in his letter to the Philippians. He said, and again, let's read this together out loud. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So this is the peace of God. It's something that just transcends understanding. It doesn't make sense logically, but it's something that just guards your heart and mind. The word there describes a sentinel. Imagine a a soldier posted at the the gates of your heart, and and, and he's not allowing any turmoil, any anxiety, any fear in there. This is the peace of God, and it's a beautiful thing. Now, that leads to the third kind of peace that the Bible talks about, and Paul mentions it here. It's, It's peace with one another. And this kind of peace comes as just an outgrowth or an overflow of the other two that we just mentioned. You see, when you're at peace with God and you're walking in the peace of God, that inevitably just spills over into all your other relationships. And that's what Paul says when he says, as members of the same body, you have been called to this peace. We see that in verse 15. Now, it's not automatic. It's still something that we have to walk in and work out and Practice. It's something that we have to strive to maintain, the Bible says, elsewhere. You see, some critics like to point to the fact that, well, the church, you know, you guys have all of these 
factions and divisions and and aren't there, you know, a bunch of of different kinds of churches and they're always fighting about stuff and different denominations. By the way, I've read this past week that there are over 40,000 different Christian denominations. And a lot of critics like to point to that fact as evidence of the fact that the church is just as splintered and divided as the rest of the world. You can't even get your own stuff together, so why should we take our cues from you? And I understand where they're coming from, and and some of those divisions are ungodly, but, but I also see it differently. You see, there are differences, differences of style, different kinds of expressions within the church, but at the end of the day, we're still all Christian churches. We're all part of the same family. And just like your family, there might be things that are different about you than your siblings, but you all come together at the end of the day. And there's far more that unites us than separates us. Like the different colors of a rainbow, we reflect different aspects of God's beauty and nature. And so we all worship the same Lord, and we're part of the same big C, capital C, church. So we're to walk in this peace. We're to reflect this peace to the world. And then Paul says something interesting in verse 15. He says that we're to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. Now, what does that mean? It's an interesting thought, because the word rule there, it comes from the world of athletics, It's the same word that we would use to describe the rule of an umpire or an official or a referee. So Paul is telling us that the the peace of Christ, it plays a very important rule or important role, rather, with regards to discerning God's will. It's the umpire in helping us to discern what is God's will. The umpire, he tells you if it's a ball or if it's a strike or if it's in or if it's out. And that's what God's peace does in our lives. Now, this is where this gets really practical, because one of the questions I know a lot of you have is, how do I know if this is God's will for my life? If it's not black and white, if it's one of those gray areas, and it's, should I go to school here or here? Should I work there or there? Should I marry him or him? Should I, what what should I do, her or her? Whatever the case may be, we want to know what's God's will. And one of the questions I always ask people when they ask me that is, do you have a piece about one of those options. You see, according to Paul, one of the ways you'll know God's will is you'll have a piece about it. Quick illustration from my own life, when, when my wife and I were, my own life, when my wife and I were deciding whether or not God was calling us to leave and uproot our lives here in San Diego and move to Colorado, we waited until we both had a piece about it in our hearts. And that took some time, because there would be times where I would say, okay, honey, I really feel like this is the time. The timing is right. God's moving, and, and, and we're supposed to, to move to Colorado. And she's like, I just don't have a piece about it yet. And I thought this was a big enough decision that we could, you know, if he, God has my phone number, he has her phone number, too, and he could get us on the same page. And he has your phone number, too. <laughs> we planned that. Thank you. It took a lot of effort. But we were both waiting for that piece. And then we were both, when we were both on the same page, we knew that, OK, the timing is right. God gave us a piece, and we moved out to Colorado. And then the same thing when it came time for us to come back home to San Diego. We both just had a piece in our hearts. And, and that piece was one of the deciding factors in our move. However, I want to add this, that while peace is an essential ingredient in discerning the will of God, it should never be the only factor that you weigh. 
Why? Because there's such thing as a false peace. Does anyone in here remember the story of Jonah the prophet? He ran away from God. God sent Jonah to Nineveh, and he boarded a ship headed for Tarshish, which was the complete opposite direction, 180 degrees in the opposite way. But he was so at peace with his decision that he was able to go down into the bottom of the ship and fall asleep and remain asleep in the midst of a terrible storm. You ever tried to sleep on a boat where that thing is rocking in a storm? Oh, it's not easy. Yet he had perfect peace in his heart. It was a false peace. And so too, I've had people tell me that it's okay for them to to live with their boyfriend or their girlfriend because they've prayed about it and they have a peace about it. Listen, God will never give you a peace in your heart about breaking one of his commandments. So if you have a peace about something that the Bible calls sin, that peace didn't come from God. It came from another source, okay? Just throwing that out there. We also, in addition to to looking for the peace of God. We also need to seek out godly counsel. We need to pray. And then we need to make sure that what we're doing aligns with what God has already declared in his word, which leads us to our second point in the message this evening. We must let the message of Christ dwell among us. Verse 15 talks about letting the peace of Christ rule in you. Verse 16 talks about the message of Christ dwelling among you. So now we're talking communally, among. That's the language of of a corporate setting. Paul is addressing the church. It starts with a personal peace, but then that moves into the community of the body of believers. And Paul is saying that the, the word of Christ, the message of Christ, by the way, from Genesis to Revelation, it's all the message of Christ. We think of, you know, the gospels telling the, the story of Christ. But really, he's on every page. He's in every story. He's, he's the subject and the plot of the whole book from cover to cover. So when we talk about the message of Christ, we're talking about the whole Bible. And Paul says, let that dwell richly among you. Let it hold a prominent place in your gatherings. And I'm reading this thinking, well, <laughs> duh. You know, yeah, the, the gospel, yeah, the, the word of God, it should be central in what the church does. And yet, maybe it's not so obvious, right? If you look around at our world today, there are plenty of churches where the word of God and the gospel message have been either replaced or, in some cases, completely removed. And they just, they don't even use this book anymore. I don't know what they do. There's the story in in the book of Revelation where Jesus, he writes a series of seven letters to seven different churches. It's how Revelation opens up. And in one of those letters, he addresses the church at Laodicea. And he says something very interesting to them. He says, behold, I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. If you'll open the door, I'd love to come in and join what you're doing at church. (laughs) And I think there's a lot of churches out there today just like that, where Jesus is like, knock, hello, can I come in? Am I welcome here? And he would love to be a part of that. Now, our church is obviously a word-centered church, and we open this book each and every week, and we want to drink deeply from it. We want to just kind of absorb it. We want to draw out all of the riches and mine all of the riches from it. But we don't just do that corporately. You see, for the word to dwell among us richly, it also needs to dwell among each one of us 
individually. Does that make sense? So let the word of Christ dwell among you. It needs to dwell within each one of you. I read some startling statistics. 92% of Americans own at least one Bible. That's, that's pretty good, including a lot of atheists. Of those households that own at least one Bible, the average number of Bibles they own is three. However, when it comes to reading the good book, the story changes a little bit. Only 59% of Americans uh, said that they read the Bible occasionally, and occasionally means between three to four times a year. That number is down from 73% in the 1980s. And the percentage of Americans who read the Bible at least once a week is even lower, so that's 37%. In other words, we've got a lot of people who have this book. Many of us have multiple copies, but it doesn't do us any good if it just sits on a shelf. And what I'm trying to draw your attention to here is the fact that Paul's not merely telling us to revere the Bible or to hold it in high esteem or to, to, to regard it. He's telling us to allow it to dwell among us richly. And now that's a very different thing. The word translated dwell here literally means to settle down and feel at home in. You know what that's like when you just feel at home. In my home, there are places that belong to me, places that I retreat to each and every morning when I wake up and I have my spot on the couch. And it's wonderful because at this point, there's like grooves and contours in the couch and it just hugs all of me and it just it envelops me and it's, it's, it knows me as I know it. It's home. <laughs> and Paul's pointing to that picture and he's saying, that's what it ought to be like when it comes to your relationship with this book. You should know this book and, and it should know you. The goal should be that there are, are places in here that are, are as familiar and as comfortable to you as those places in your home, those retreats that you run to. I've heard it said like this. I love this quote. A Bible that's falling apart, you know, just kind of frayed pages coming apart, it seems. A Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to a Christian who isn't. <laughs> kind of fun, right? Because it's in your heart. It's dwelling among you richly. Paul goes on to say that the reason that we need to allow God's word to settle down and be at home in our hearts is so that we can teach and admonish one another through it. Now, notice the words one another. This means that this is all y'all's job. We tend to think that the teaching, that, that's my job. And certainly, that is part of my job. And God does equip and anoint and gift certain people to be able to teach and expound the word. But it, it's all of our job at the same point. I just want to be real clear about that. You have a responsibility to teach your kids, to teach your, your neighbors, to teach in your home one another the word of God. Now, teaching, that means simply to give instruction. Admonishing means to give warning. And both of these things are very important. 2 Timothy 3.16 is a wonderful verse, and it says it well. I'd love it. Again, if we could read this together out loud. It should be in your notes. Ready? The whole Bible was given to us by inspiration from God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It straightens us out and helps us do what is right. I love that. The Bible, 
It shows us what's right, shows us what's wrong. It encourages and it course corrects. It points us down the right path, and then once we fall off the path, it helps us get back on. And Paul says, this is what you all need to be doing with one another, teaching one another, admonishing one another. But you can't give what you don't have. And so if it's not in here, you'll have nothing to give to those in your life. He goes on in verse 16, the second half, to say that we we teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. Anytime you share the word of God, you are sharing something that is pure wisdom. And he says you do this through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Now, what is Paul saying here? Is he saying that we should walk up to one another and like just start singing to one another? <laughs> Hello, the word of God says. <laughs> Not exactly. Paul is obviously talking here about worship. And you know this, that music and worship have, from the very beginning, always played an important role in the affairs of the church. William Barclay, in his commentary, points out that from her inception, the church has always been a singing church. And you can go back as far as you want to the very beginning of time. And, and there are songs that are, that are ingrained in the DNA of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. The church commissioned the works of men like Mozart and Bach and Handel. I mean, just think about all the contributions that have been made to music through, through the church. And music continues to play a, po- a prominent role in the church today. And by the way, music's going to continue to play a prominent role when we get to heaven. Somebody say hallelujah. That's good news. There are a lot of things that won't be in heaven. You know, you're not going to have taxes. Amen. You're not going to have tears in heaven. There will be no more sickness, sorrow, death, or disease. But I'm thankful to report that one thing that we're going to take to heaven with us when we get caught up and so are with the Lord is music. Heaven is filled with the sounds of praise and worship. And by the way, it's not just one type of worship that you're going to hear. There's, there's every language and kindred and tribe and tongue. And I'm imagining there's going to be all kinds of different instrumentation up there as well. And that's a beautiful, beautiful thought. Someone once observed that one of the sadder things about atheism is that you really have nothing to sing about. <laughs> you know, have you ever thought about that? Oddly enough, the comedian Steve Martin observed this. And so he wrote a song about the fact that atheists have nothing to sing about, which is ironic. Part of his song said this. It's called the Atheist Hymnal. And part of the song says this. Christians have their hymns and pages. Hava Nagilas for the Jews. Baptists have the rock of ages. Atheists just sing the blues. Romantics play Claire de Lune. Born again sing He is Risen. But no one ever wrote a tune for godless existentialism. For atheists, there's no good news. They'll never sing a song of faith. In their songs, they have a rule. The he is always lowercase. The he is always lowercase. Catholics dress up for mass and listen to Gregorian chants. Atheists just take a pass. Watch football in their underpants. Watch football in their underpants. Atheists don't have no songs. 
Thank God we're believers and we have lots of songs and lots of reasons to sing. Paul here outlines three types of of different kinds of worship here. The first one he mentions is psalms. Most of you know that the, the book of Psalms, which by way of real estate in your Bible takes up the most room. And also, I think that it's noting, worth noting that the Psalms are right there in the middle of your Bible, right in the heart of your Bible. And each and every one of them was originally written as a song. They were originally sung. And, and so I was just thinking about this earlier backstage as I was getting ready to come out here and how, how so many of these Psalms, when I read them, I immediately am transported back to a song that I, I heard growing up, like Psalm 121, which says, I lift my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? Anybody remember that song? I lift my eyes up unto the mountains. Where does my help come from? And so you can just go on and on. I think of Psalm 133, how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together. And immediately I'm thinking, behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. (laughs) And it goes on from there. Psalm 136, give thanks to the Lord, our God and King. His love endures forever. And it goes on and on. Every psalm, it just, I could keep going, but you get the point. You know, as the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after thee. These are all psalms that are songs, and it's beautiful. It reveals the heart of our Heavenly Father. His heart is never far from the sounds of praise and worship psalms. We sing the psalms. We don't just read the psalms. The second one he mentions is hymns. Hymns have always been a part of the church as well. The earliest known hymn, did you know this? One of the very earliest known hymn in church history is actually found in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. That's that's a hymn that the early church would sing, and Paul included it in his letter to the Philippians. I'm also a huge fan of all the old hymns, and so many of them have rich, dynamic, deep, theological truths and doctrines embedded within them. And we sing many of them here. And then the third category that Paul mentions is spiritual songs. Many of our modern worship songs would fall into this category, just songs that were birthed out of the spirit, songs that God drops into your heart and gives you for a season. I'm so thankful for our gifted worship team and musicians, and and they came out with an album a couple of years ago that I listen to all the time when I'm walking around here and studying and preparing these messages. And, And even those spiritual songs that come to you that you haven't planned or written or prepared. I've had this happen a number of times. Jimmy um, and Kayla, the rest of the team, they could speak to this as well, John as well, that you'll just be playing and you'll get to the end of the song that you all know the words to. But then you've, you've seen this where they'll just lead into a chorus. And you're like, I've never heard that before. And oftentimes, the reason you've never heard it before is because the song is being written in that moment. It's a spiritual song that God gives to the worship leader. And it could be a a phrase that just gets repeated. And I would just, as you hear those, enter in. And perhaps the Lord will begin to give you songs as well. It's, It's a beautiful thing. But the thing to note about all of these songs 
is that Paul doesn't draw a distinction in verse 16 between the teaching time and the music time like we do. He says that we're to teach one another and admonish one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Does that make sense? According to Paul, the teaching time doesn't start when the worship time ends. And you could reverse that as well. The, the, the worship time doesn't stop when the teaching time begins. What are we doing right now? We're ingesting the word of God and it's inspiring worship in our hearts that is then going to lead us into more musical songs. But even still, when we worship, there is a teaching that's going on. You're being instructed in your spirit man or in your spirit woman important things about the nature of who God is. You're realigning your heart to the things that he says matter, the things that he says are important. And so make no mistake about it. The, the church service, the teaching begins the moment we start, which is why I've never understood those people are like, ah, you know, we still got 30 minutes to get to our seat because, you know, it's just the worship. No, no, no. The worship isn't the buffer time. It's, it's not just the musical entertainment portion of the evening service. It's, it's an important instructional part of what God is doing. In fact, let me just share a bit of my story. I got saved during worship. At the time, I was, was wrestling through a lot of things, searching for a lot of answers, and, and looking in all the wrong places. Can anybody relate to that story? And I got invited by a, a friend of mine to this church. And, and I went with her to the service. And here's what I can tell you. I remember it like it was yesterday, as crystal clear as though I were there right now, walking through the, the, the side entrance of this church in Claremont. And, and as I stepped through the doors, the place was electric with the presence of God. And people everywhere were lifting their hands and, and raising their voices in song. And you know what? The Bible talks about how God inhabits the praises of his people. And so there is, there is a presence that falls from heaven when the people of God lift their voices in song. And the, the presence of God in that place was so thick that I fell under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and I gave my heart and my life to Jesus right then and there. I didn't understand everything that was going on. All I knew is what these people are experiencing is what I've been looking for. I don't have it, and I want it, and I'm in. So the preacher got up, and he shared his message. I didn't remember much of it. I can't tell you a word he said, but all I knew is, man, I'm in. I walked down to the front, and that set me on the journey that uh, has led me down the last 22, 23 years now. So I think I was 18, 19 years old at the time when that happened. So, so powerful, worship. And then the last thing that Paul tells us about worship is that it's to be done with thanksgiving. Again, this is so powerful. We, we enter his gates with thanksgiving in our hearts. We enter his courts with praise, and this informs how we structure our worship services. And, and we begin with praise and thanksgiving. Why? Because that's what the word tells us to do. And that, in turn, whets the appetite for the word of God. So we open up the word. And when we open up the word, it inspires more praise, which is why we end in praise again. Our hearts are driven back to worship again. So Paul says, we teach one another. We admonish one another in wisdom and through psalms, 
and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in our heart with gratitude. And then he closes in verse 17 by just saying, and whatever, whatever, whatever you do, whether word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And we're going to dig into this verse a little bit more next week. But just a, a few comments as we close this evening. If point one is let the peace of Christ rule in you, and point two is let the word or the message of Christ dwell richly among you, then the third point is this, let the name of Christ compel you. He says, do everything, whatever you do, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean, to do everything in the name of Jesus? For one thing, I think it means that you should live in such a way that you would not be embarrassed to put Jesus' name on whatever it is you're doing. Because in essence, that is essentially what you are doing. You bear the name of Jesus. Now, in the ancient world, a person's name, it conveyed a lot, right? And it still does. We'll put a name on a product that, that has a reputation or a history that is Significant. So when you see the word Steinway emblazoned on a pano, you know that that name speaks volumes about what went into making that piano. Well, as Christians, we bear the name of Jesus. We belong to him. That means we get to represent him in this world in everything that we do. And that's something we should be cognizant of, something that we should Never forget that we bear the name of Jesus. And we should be able to do our work in such a way that, whether it's through our words or if it's just through our deeds, that just by the quality of your work, by the quality of the way you go about your business, by the manner in which you speak, you know, that you can just tell, like, this person is a believer. I was walking behind a group of people today, and, and they were speaking in a different dialect, and I, I don't know a word of Russian, but I could just tell by, by the, the manner and the tone and the tenor of what they were saying that they were speaking Russian. And so too, as believers, there should be something about the tone and the tenor and the manner in which we live our lives, every aspect of our lives, that, you know, there's something about you that reminds me of Jesus. So the name, it speaks to our identity, but the other thing it indicates is our authority. And this is where we'll land the plane this evening. You see, the greater the name, the greater the authority. If I were to pull out a checkbook and to write a check in the amount of a million dollars and sign the bottom of the check and give that to you, you might be thankful, but your thanks would be misplaced because that's a check you shouldn't count, cash, can't cash because I don't have the, the funds, I don't have the authority to put my name on that check. Does that make sense? But when the President of the United States signs a bill, it makes it a law. When Bill Gates signs a check, it authorizes the withdrawal of that amount of resources from the bank. Why? Because those men have authority. Well, guess what? The name of Jesus is the highest authority in heaven and on earth. It is the greatest name, the name above all other names. 
And it's the only name given to men by which we must be saved. And so we're called to live in the authority of that name. So we bring the name and the authority of Jesus with us into places. And you can shift the atmosphere in a place by bringing the presence of Jesus with you into a place. And you're in a dark place. You just start to say the name of Jesus, Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, because where the name of Jesus is, there is power, there is authority, and your identity is rooted in the fact that you belong to Jesus. Your identity is in Christ. Your authority is tied to the person of Christ. So bring that with you and change the atmospheres in the places where you live and work and do business and do life. This is the word for tonight. Let the peace of Christ rule in you personally. Let the word of Christ dwell among you corporately. And let the name of Christ compel you to live for him in all things. Jesus in everything. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this word tonight. Thank you for the opportunity to gather like this, to pray as your people, to sit under the teaching, the explanation, the exposition of your word. But Lord, we're not just here for a talk. We're not just here to sing songs. We're not just here to check a box. We're here to have a li- an encounter, a transformative encounter with the living God. And so if we walk out of those doors the same way we came in and nothing has changed in us, then I have failed. We have failed. Because the idea is that we would leave here having surrendered a little bit more. That we would leave here looking a little bit more like you, Jesus. Because the truth of the matter is what this world desperately needs isn't more of us, isn't more of our ideas, We have nothing to offer, but you are the answer. You are the solution to every problem and the answer to every question. You are the point of all human history. You are the culmination of the ages. You are King of kings and Lord of lords, and you're coming back soon, Lord. So please help us to cast aside all of these lesser things that we consume ourselves with. And Lord, would you become central in our thoughts? Would you take the place of prominence in our lives? Would you become preeminent in our minds? Would you sit on the throne of our lives and rule every nook and cranny, Jesus? Would we get rid of our bento boxes and allow you to infiltrate and infuse every corner of our hearts. Because what the world needs is more of you and less of us. So we pray together with John the baptizer. Lord, would you increase as we decrease? And together we say amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.